0: Hello and welcome to the Right Around the Murray Festival 2021 program reshaped for online presentation. My name is Anne-Marie, WAM Festival Director, and I'm talking to you from the Aubrey Library Museum here on Wiradjuri country, and I would like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people as the traditional custodians of this land and pay respect to Elders past, present and future, for they hold the memories culture, traditions, and hopes of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people that contribute to our community. A big thank you to all of you who are tuned in locally and around the country, many of you in lockdown, many of us in lockdown, um, including those of you watching the, this as a replay later. We truly appreciate your support of the Right Around the Murray Festival and of literature and storytelling and the arts more broadly we're thrilled to be able to present this afternoon's session historical frictions with dorothy simmons anita heiss jock sarong and jason steger thanks to all of them for transitioning to online format with us it's my pleasure to introduce our moderator for the session jason steger Jason is the literary editor for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, um, including the free digital newsletter, The Book List, through which he keeps readers in the loop with all sorts of book news and which you can all subscribe to. Um, great to have you with us again, Jason, for another year of WHAM.
1: Thank you very much, Anne-Marie. It's great to be second... with you.
0: Yep. Thank you. and. you. Um, Great session last night. Great to have you here for your second session in the program.
1: It's lovely to be here.
0: Before I hand over to Jason to introduce our panel, I'll remind listeners that you'll be able to type questions for the panel at any time using the chat bar on the right side of your screen, um, just as long as you're logged into Google. And Jason will come to your questions toward the end of the session. So enjoy this conversation, everyone. Over
1: to you, Jason. Thanks, Anne-Marie. And hello, everybody. Um, I'm speaking to you from the land of the Yakulet Willem clan of the Boon people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Historical frictions. Uh, We're going to be discussing many issues this afternoon. And I mean, apart from anything else, it's tricky to decide what constitutes historical fiction. There's a, a, a quite a generous historical fiction prize actually, the ARA Historical Novel Prize, which gives $50,000 to the best novel. Uh, it was won last year in its first year by Miranda Riwo for her novel, Stone Sky Gold Mountain, which was about two Chinese siblings on the North Queensland goldfields in 1877. But the interesting thing about the prize is that it defines a historical novel as, and I'm going to quote here, one in which the majority of the narrative, i.e. more than 50 percent of the events described, must have taken place at least 50 years before publication. So if you accept that, that means something For example, uh, Jonathan Franzen has a new novel called Crossroads, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, and that's set in 1970 in America. So Jonathan Franzen is now a historical novelist. Um, We have, uh, I'm going to, there's another interesting comment that I read from um, Geraldine Brooks, the Australian author who has written several uh, acclaimed historical novels. And she says, The thing that attracts me to historical fiction is taking the factual record, as far as it is known, using that as scaffolding, and then letting the imagination build the structure that fills in those things we can never find out for sure. So today, we have three fabulous uh, guests to discuss historical fiction and historical frictions, authors of historical novels themselves. Uh, We have um, Dottie Simmons, who is very well known to people in Albury and att- at regular attendees at right around the Murray because she's been on the committee for a long time. Dorothy's is the author of Of Breath and Blood, which is set in the Parramatta Female Factory in the year of 1827. Uh, Jock Serong is the author of The Burning Island, which is a sequel to his novel uh, Preservation, which is set around the same time 1830 and anita heiss's novel in english is river of dreams in the wiradjuri uh, language the title is billa yara dungalong Dure. i got that wrong it, of course i was always going to get it wrong wasn't i billa yara dang yara dangalanga duray anyway look uh, anita will uh, Correct me, I really hope. So please welcome Anita, Jock, and Dottie. Okay, Anita, first thing, correct my pronunciation, which was embarrassingly
2: awful.
3: Can I just say anybody who tries gets a high distinction from me? <laughs> uh, villa or river? Yeah. Yeah. So yarul yarudang is dream galang yep. is the plural so many dreams yep. and deray is the action of having the dreams so we have our own grammar system so Billy ada okay
1: so it's river of i and river of dreams of course Thank um you. okay now i can i take you back to that that comment by Geraldine brooks i'll, I'll read it again shall i just in case um the thing that attracts me to historical fiction is taking the factual record as far as it is known using that as scaffolding and then letting imagination build the structure that fills in those things we can never find out for sure. Is that is that the same? Is, do, are you attracted to it in the same way as her?
3: Who are you asking, Jason?
1: I'm asking all of you. So oh, jump right in. Oh, I thought in. that
3: was for Anita. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: yeah. uh, I'm I'm happy for Anita to go first. Is that well
3: you? I would say yes. I think um, it, I absolutely I think we can only work with what we what we know in terms of what re- documentation, recorded mm-hmm. material, uh, what we have in terms of oral history which of course you know increasingly has more value in in western society and then i think the joy for the writer is being able to imagine um imagine the opinions and the values and the landscape and so Mm, forth mm. outside of what we've got that's concrete knowledge so um i i i I do subscribe to that to that uh that way of thinking that into the geraldine
4: scene yeah yes you go um, I was just going to say, yes, I go along with that too, but you can extend that because you can think of, you know, a stave and a bar of music, so you've got the, the factual lines going across, which indicate the framework in which you're working, but you can make up the tunes in between.
2: Right.
5: Yeah. I remember thinking when I um, when I started writing preservation, I'd never written historical fiction before, and I had no idea how to approach it. And the, the mental image that I had was this idea of pillars and, the, and that I was stringing coloured lights between them. So it's very much like the scaffold idea, I suppose, that as far as I was concerned, the things that could be reasonably ascertained had to remain in place and not be tampered with, and that in the in-between, in the gaps, there was the job for imagination. But the, the great danger, I think, is that when you do that, anything that's written on a given yeah, subject in history yeah. adds to the great mound of stuff that's known about the subject. And the further back that recedes into the past, the less people are able to distinguish what is researched and tested and known and what's been made up mm-hmm. so you have an enormous responsibility not to mess with the foundational parts of the story mm-hmm.
3: so yeah. those so
1: it's it's not a free for all then
5: no i don't think it is at all
3: no. i think there's an expectation for me there's an expectation from readers or as a reader that if i'm buying a historical novel that the the facts the reality around that moment in time are as authentic as humanly possible. And understanding for me that as a reader and a writer, that the fictional side is the mechanism for te- telling the story, but the actual event is the purpose for writing the story. If that makes sense, and um, and the structure can be for me, I think uh, a mix of both fiction and and faction is, as it were.
2: Mm, mm, mm. Mm.
1: Yeah. Dottie, were you about to chip well, in
4: I was in? going to refer to the, this sort of mythical anecdote where a, a man goes into a shop looking for the true history of, of the Kelly Gang and he doesn't find it because he doesn't think to look in the fiction section. He goes looking. <laughs> <in the laughs> yes, yeah,
1: that's very true, isn't it? That's very... It's very, interesting.
4: very telling because, because I think as as a writer of historical fiction, you, you do, like Anita said, have a, have a responsibility to be true to the facts as far as yeah. the facts go fortunately for us fiction writers the facts never go far enough so you can, you can go beyond
1: that but do, you, do I, you ever do you tinker with the facts so? though?
4: no i don't as far as I, as far as possible i, I generally don't Yeah. No. right it, and I think like, sorry i was just saying, I think right. i'm talking that the real i think
3: many people choose historical fiction as a way of learning about history and engaging with mm-hmm. history as opposed mm-hmm. to you know, a textbook or, you know, any other nonfiction work. So I, my feeling and my thoughts is if this is the only time that they're going to read about, for example, The Great Flood of Gundagai, yep. then I want to make sure they get as much of the story as possible in the format that they want to learn in or they want to engage with. So I think for authors we have that level of responsibility and accountability because this may be the only time that many readers engage with the kind of story that we're writing
4: Mm. The thing I
5: I would also add to this is that um, even when you stick to the facts, the facts have often been messed with anyway. Um, And when I wrote Preservation, I I studied, I was working off a diary, and and for the third book I'm working off a diary again. And the diaries are full of self-serving stuff and outright propaganda. And when I did Preservation, I spoke to and people about their version of the story, which had been handed down really accurately over whatever that is, 220 years. And they said, look, it's completely different. It's none of your business, A, but B, it's completely different. Um, mm. So you have to be very careful not to assume that you're starting from a reliable base because you might not be anyway. Mm.
3: Well, the recording of history, as we know, is completely subjective because the way in which the colonisers remember and record history is significantly different to the way in which colonised peoples remember and record history. So mm. it's also we, we, it's a great point you've made, John. I mean, we read through a lens uh, and we write through a lens, and I guess mm. we just need to be conscious of, as you say, that the documents that we're reading and how we use those and how we interpret those, because they've already been interpreted through somebody else's lens. Yeah.
4: because that's, that's the important thing that that it's not just the fact; it's the, not just the facts. It's our attitudes towards the facts, how we interpret those facts that change, and that we get the notion of, of, of rewriting rewriting history and so on. And that's where, yeah, I think you do have that responsibility to be essentially. Authentic, I think, um, and if, if you're not going to be, then you you make it clear that you're not going to be. Yeah, and presumably, I mean Anita, if you if
1: somebody was writing a novel around the 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 flood of in, in Gundagai of the, the Murrumbidgee, say fifty years ago, yeah. it would have been a very different sort of novel.
3: It would have been a different novel and you know i, I haven't i don't claim to with billy out of to have written the ultimate novel i've written something that can sit alongside you know whatever is already existing um i think you know the publishing industry is very different we 50 it's the first time we've ever had uh, an australian commercial novel with no english on the cover for a start mm. and And we've seen now an explosion of language appearing in many Australian novels, obviously, Tarajun Winch's The Yield, uh, Nadi Simpson's Song of the Crocodile and so forth. Um, And also this recognition, as slow as it's been, that you cannot write an Australian novel uh, in any moment in Australian time or history, and history is right up to five minutes ago in my view. I know there's about 50
2: (laughs) (laughs) year. We can
3: chat about that too. But... um, (laughs) You cannot write an Australian novel that does not acknowledge in some way, shape or form Aboriginal people because wherever your novel is set, it's set on the traditional lands of an Aboriginal nation and that nation has its own language and the first language of this country is not English. And I think 50 years ago, that wasn't even on the radar. Ten years ago, not even on the radar. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Um, But so when, when, when you were writing your novel... That was one of your motivations, wasn't it? To write with language
2: and it, well, in language.
3: Jason, thank you for that question. When I had the idea to write the novel about the great flood of Gundagai, it was because I couldn't believe, well, not couldn't believe, I wanted all Australians to know about that that was Australia's Greatest natural disaster and the loss of life there. I wanted to know about these two, Erodium Niani and Jackie Jackie, and their extraordinary heroism in that period of time. But I didn't know when I started that novel that I would then that it would have language in it because I didn't start learning my language till six months later, the age of fifty. And when I was in the in the, the classroom in Wagga, on Wiradjuri Country also, and the by the classroom I mean the lecture theater, but I also mm-hmm. mean the floodplains of Wagga and the Murrumbidgee Billa and Standing in the River and learning language that I I realized here's my opportunity to make a small contribution to the reclamation and maintenance of Wiradjuri language and acknowledge that. The work of Uncle Stan Grant, Dr. Uncle Stan Grant, and Dr. John Rudder, and what they've done, bringing together, um, possibly, we've got the most resources of any language group in the nation. And and for me, it was, it, I mean, even, even the authenticity of the story, even though it has language, the reality is, those Wiradjuri characters would have only been speaking Wiradjuri to each other. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not even fluent enough to do that. So in many ways, it, it was as authentic as I could make it. But we exist in a in a in a publishing scene here in Australia, where the dominant language is English, and we write, you know, I want people to read my book. And so, um, you know, I did want to, I wanted people to understand the complexity of our language. I wanted to understand people to understand the beauty of our language. And I wanted people to recognise or, you know, come to some understanding is, oh my God, there are, there were languages, there are still living languages as well.
1: Would you, um, would you ever envisage writing an entire novel in Wiradjuri?
3: Oh, I can tell you, Jason, I, 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 one, I wouldn't have the skills to do that. Um, yet.
1: I mean, you've only been, you as you said, you've yet. only been learning two and a half years.
3: I know, but I, 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 I would like to, I could write a novel and I could pay someone to translate it for me. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I'm going to do a kid's picture book. And yep. a lot of that will be on oh, the Great Flood and a lot of that will be in Wiradjuri. And my next novel, Didei um, water which means to rise up we'll have more language in there because I think what we're finding as all of us as authors no doubt are finding that readers are becoming more I don't think we've got enough faith in our readers to understand and believe and trust that they can be challenged and they want to be challenged and so um I I can't imagine writing 130,000 words in miragery my English vocab's not that big
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it is I mean, the portrayal of indigenous characters in historical fiction is a, in any fiction is um, is a sensitive subject, isn't it? I don't know um, jock have you have you written indigenous characters?
5: Yeah, I did in preservation, and I did in burning up. Oh, of course but, you
1: um, did in preservation, I, yeah, yeah,
5: yeah, and I have in the third book. and um it's it's definitely difficult territory for a white writer, and I try to be really conscious of what I'm doing. Um, I I think, I know, Anita, you wrote a little while ago about the topic of you can't have an Australian novel without coming to grips with the the Indigenous aspects of the story you're telling, and and I think that's entirely fair. And so, A, you can't shirk it, but B, um, when you grapple with it, you've got to do it, I think, with a lot of diligence and a lot of humility. In other words, making sure that you've done your homework about what you're talking about. Um, and consulting with somebody who, um, whose story it is, or whose authority it is to speak about it. Um, and then once you've done those things, try as much as you can to get yourself out of the road, um, and let the story do its own talking. the, the minute you're sort of tr- trampling all over it as an author, um, you're starting to undo your own work. So um, it's been a it's been a real learning curve for me, and I'm still on it. I'm, I'm by no means there, but. Um, yeah, it takes you back to craft and um, the difficulty of constructing something that's actually authentic. Because mm. there's a million pitfalls you can you can stagger into doing that. And yeah, I, think, I think,
1: sorry, go on, Dotty.
4: I was going to say I think there's a real parallel there between writing from that point of view and writing, writing historical fiction as well, because in each case you're making a sort of empathetic leap into another consciousness, maybe of another of another time, of another of another skin. Uh, And, um, you know, I mean, because there's another brand, there's hysterical fiction where you've got low bosoms and people with with radios and things. uh, And, and, you know, it is quite different. That's just imposing our consciousness on on the past or imposing our consciousness on on Indigenous people. And what you've got to do is acknowledge it and however you do it, do it as honestly as you can and make that leap and get your audience to jump with you. I mean, in,
1: in the piece that you wrote, Anita, you, you talked about um, non-Indigenous people writing appropriately. Mm-hmm. And so how would you define appropriately when, when a non-Indigenous person comes to write about First Nations people?
3: Um, you know. uh, well, I, I did want to mention Terry Jenkins' True Tracks, which has come out recently, and, of course, she's done a whole range of uh, protocol guides for writers, for the Australian side of authors, for the Australia Council, and I, and I did a code of ethics checklist for the ASA many, many years ago. And I think, I mean, I would just ask uh, to, for people to consider their representation of the characters they're writing about. Is the work that they're writing empowering to Indigenous people and, and what has influenced their concept of what their character looks like. I had somebody email me recently about something, you know, an idea for a story they were writing, and the indigenous um, character came from a broken home. All these stereotypes, and I said, and I said, why does that character have to be there? Why can't the character be coming from a home like I did, which was full of love and and you know, a completely different space? And when I've run workshops down in Melbourne, I, I've got on one side of the one side of the whiteboard, and it was for people wanting to write. Characters, Indigenous characters, and I said, I want you to write all the negative stereotypes you've ever heard about Indigenous people. And I, 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 I read things that I didn't even know about myself. And then on the other side, I want you to write all the positive stereotypes you know about. And then I said to them, we looked at both sides, and I said, why can't this is the side you need to focus on? This is why can't we create a whole wealth of information, a whole wealth of literature that focuses on the beauty of First Nations peoples rather than perpetuating through our own literature um, negative stereotypes and so forth. So I would recommend people who wanted to write to check out the Australia Council writing protocols, pull them down off the website. And I say to to authors who come to to me at the 11th hour when they want to slot in a character somewhere, Mm. you need... That needs to be in the planning of your novel, whether you're a panther or a plotter, that needs to be in your planning. You don't just at the 11th hour go, oh, I forgot to put in, you know, an Aboriginal character. And the other thing I'd say is if people are nervous about, about how to approach writing about um, Aboriginal community, whatever, play that ignorance out in your character Right, as character. So I've read novels, historical novels, where there'll be a very brief mention, or even contemporary novels, a brief mention of, mm. oh, there, you know, some very generic mention, but at least it's there, and that tells me that the author wasn't confident enough to delve any deeper. But at least there's acknowledgement through their characters that, oh yes, this business is here now, but there used to be this these people here then. So that mm. there is some some recognition
2: right
1: right yeah and then, and certainly there's um, there's a very good scene in in your novel when when um, um, the character y- uh, Yinda Yamara is out and um, he's sitting around with uh, some English uh, guys and an Irish guy and and the Irish guy knows exactly uh, the experience of of dealing with the english uh, you know as colonizers and and exploiters and everything and he and so the, it, that's a very good scene in which you you indicate how sort of ignorant the colonizers are i think mm. through, and i, see, I mean, through that dialogue between that very brief scene
3: yeah, there's, there are many ways to do it, and I, I mean, I, we could do a whole a whole conversation on that. And I just think um, I'm not saying that people should give up trying. And I just alluded to this. I think my my personal view is, if you have no personal experience with it within with Aboriginal people on a day to day basis, or it's going to be very hard for you to write authentically. But like anything, if I wanted to write a novel, I did with including a stockbroker. I interviewed some stockbrokers. You know, I go and spend time. I learn. There's so many ways to learn now. For, you know, there's over 7,000 published Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island authors. You can go to the go to the theatre. You can watch a movie. There's really no excuse in 2021 for any Australian author to um, make excuses, particularly in historical fiction, to say that they can't be part of a process of truth telling mm. through their through their own writing because they're nervous about writing about First Nations peoples. Mm. My personality.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Dotty. I'd like to ask you about um, the Parramatta Female Factory,
2: yeah.
1: and and your protagonist Anne Gordon. Um, yeah. So you chose a very real person <laughs> from history, um, and the way you've written the novel, you're in her head a lot of the time, and then you're using a lot of dialogue, um, uh, uh, particularly with the with the the inmates of the factory. What was it that appealed to you about Anne Gordon? I
4: guess I guess what it was that appealed it was a number of things. First of all, was being put in that situation, you know it's your first day in a new job and mm. you've got that in your hands. How do you how do you deal with that? Uh, and the the other thing was reading such facts as I could about her life, the parallel with so many of these women in the factories' lives really struck me. And that comes out particularly in, in the central conversation between her and the fictional protagonist, who is called Molly Malone. Yep. And, um, and she and Molly probably find they're much more... To unite them, that then divides them, and that the, the division is very much a social, a social construct rather than rather than um, rather than an instinctive thing or intuitive thing. So, um, yeah. So Anne Gordon appealed to me from from that point of view because mm. because um, she was faced with this tremendous task, and I think she herself she was in that job for nine years, and and um, at the end of it. They, they fired her because the, the the governor and so on basically got rid of her because of a scandal involving her husband. Mm. About her, you know. So so again, it was it was unfair dismissal, if you like. And yes. and it, was, it just struck me that she she represented so so much of of um of I suppose the feminist thing. Mm, mm.
1: Well, and and uh, the characters in your books, um, Anita and Jock, uh, Jock. Eliza Grayling is a very strong female character, and Wogodine in 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 yours Anita, very very strong, determined, uh, very strong, determined young girl at the start. Um, that was obviously, um, you know, you chose those characters with great care, I imagine. Yeah, I,
5: I um, in the case of of Eliza, I. I started with the premise that I wanted somebody to sail into the ferno Islands in 1830 and experience what an alien world it was um, to somebody from Sydney, to somebody from England. So I, working backwards, I needed to create a character for whom that would be the biggest shock it could possibly be. And it seemed to me that a governess working in someone's house and looking after her blind and ailing father in the forest was probably exactly the person to, to be struck by that culture shock. Um, And and Eliza, long before I thought about the gender of that character, I was thinking about those ideas, about the character being vulnerable um, and confused and taking on a whole new world. And um, she's also pretty fair-minded. She's she's reasonably resourceful and she's fair-minded. So she meets the sealers, she meets the sealers' wives who are known as the Tyria Law. And there's a very live historical debate going back to what we were talking about earlier over those women and their role and how they came to be in Bass Strait and there's one side that says um, this was survival, it was pragmatic, it was an adaption and, and that it saved lives for those women being in the islands with their children with these sealers. There's another side of the debate that says this was abduction, it was sexual servitude, um, it was you know, part of a wider genocidal tendency. and. Somewhere between the two things, I'm trying to draw a line in this novel and have Eliza explore that. So I needed her to be as open-minded and observant as she could be so that she's reporting mm. all this stuff to the reader. Um, and, and those were the things I was thinking about long before I thought, oh, hang on, I think this needs to be a woman, which is another mm. discussion entirely.
1: <laughs> and she does encounter um, uh, 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 an indigenous resistance fighter, in effect, who is, is a woman, Taranora.
5: Yeah, who's just an amazing character and and one of those joys of researching where you go looking for one thing and you find another. And I found Taranora along the way, um, and Dottie and I were talking about her before. So she was from northeast Tasmania. She was brought up in a variety of households. She was essentially handed from family to family in northeast Tassie. And in the course of being trained to do domestic things for these people, she was taught to use firearms. And so when she eventually broke out and got back on country, she was able to teach other Tasmanians how to use the English firearms on them. And it's one of those few recorded instances where the guns got turned back on the English. Um, And so she was on the run for a lot of the second half of her life. And one of the reasons I chose 1830 for the novel was that it was the year when she was on the run in the islands and there were boats out looking for her, George Augustus Robinson, the great... Conciliator, so to speak, um, was very much looking for her. She was widely hated and feared, and she was also extremely resourceful. Um, mm-hmm. So she's one of those underdocumented and really fascinating resistance fighters that we, we need to know more about. Mm-hmm.
1: And Anita, um, the relationship between Rogadine uh, uh, and and um, and uh, Louisa, the the English woman who who. Wagadine works for, in effect. Um, that's quite an interesting relationship because Louisa is a Quaker and is, in in theory, a sort of benign character, isn't she? Um, and has good intentions to, to the, the local Wiradjuri people.
3: Yeah, thanks, thanks for that, Jason. It's interesting. Louisa, I didn't real, realise Louisa was going to have such an impact on readers, and then been up here in Brisbane. One writers group, and the entire the entire session, all they did was talk about Louisa, which is extraordinary given there's so much in the story. Yeah, and that, it's
2: because, strange.
3: Because, well, I think because Louisa speaks to a lot of good, good-willed, non-indigenous Australians who want yeah. to do fantastic things, um, and recognise it through Louisa that um, their intentions are either. Um, uh, not carry through or they realise that they're, when they do their intentions to do goodwill come with conditions. And so for mm. Louisa, it was a Quaker. When I learned that the Quakers came out in 1832 um,
2: and they came out with two main uh, missions, which was equality, the treatment of convicts and equality for Aboriginal people, I thought this is brilliant. I'll make Louisa. Louisa didn't have any particular background at that point, And I was, you know, when I started writing, and I thought, right, she'll be great because she mm. will then have a purpose for engaging with Wobbidine and so forth in a meaningful way. And, and because, and Louise is not a, not a bad character. I mean, I read a lot of material about how difficult it was also for settler women on the land. And you know that Louise's husband, Brother James Bradley, is quite violent and is an alcoholic and so forth. Mm. But that relationship mm. between Louise and Wobbidine is completely. Um, Unequal because Wallerdone wants nothing from Louisa except for her freedom and to go home. Where Wallerdone we needs her, uh, Louisa needs Walbergine for companionship, obviously no, Watverdone is under the Masters and Servants Act the we assume or, and the family assume. And um, you know, we see we see through Louisa a whole lot of for me even in a contemporary sense, she actually explains quite often in society today where uh, mm. the government, the government for example may say you know they want to close the gap, they want to change all these things, but they're gonna write the policy and they're gonna make the decisions on this energy for First Nations peoples. And that has been going on since the final invasion and Romagne was a moment to show a character who was resilient, who was yes. dignified, who was intelligent.
3: And she's one of the things that I see women today. And interestingly, in New South Wales. <laughs> Aboriginal people weren't allowed to bear arms under the legislation in New South Wales. So that was very interesting. I don't know whether legally the resistance women resistant fi- white fighters or any resistance fighters in Tasmania uh, were bound by legislation because they may well 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 have been, but somehow got trained in using firearms. So that's interesting. Mm.
5: Yeah, not that I know of on the legislative front, but, yep, certainly um, there were people, uh, Tonga Longata is another one, um, who were actively involved in resistance, particularly in the northeast. And um, it's fascinating the way John Batman was really one of the great villains in that dispute. And, and yet um, he continues to be venerated in Melbourne, which I just find beyond extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> the, horrible, the
1: founder man. of Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, God. Yeah. But
3: on that legislation also, the legislation front, and going back to what we were earlier talking about authenticity and responsibility, I generously had a law firm up here, um, Rose norton Fulbright that, you know, they said, how can we help? And I said, I need to know all the legislation that drew people would have lived under in New South Wales between this period of time and this period of time. And so they, you know, found material for me and which was much easier for them as lawyers than it was for me because I wanted to make sure that, again, that um, I knew what Wagadine's rights were. And she was a completely fictional character. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about the mix of, Fact and fiction. I needed her and that story with Louisa to drive the story that I wanted to tell about life for women, Australian women settlers, and so forth on the land. Then, because the original idea for the novel had nothing to do with Yardi and Jackie. Jackie. It was about women on on the land. So, right. um, yeah. So, and Wagadine was is for me is a heroine.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the fa- the fact that she survives, the fact that she endures, is. Wonderful. Sorry, Jock, um, I, interrupted I was going to say,
5: here. Anita, you remind me that um, there was, I think, an Australian story maybe about Tony McAvoy, the first Australian yeah, yeah. Indigenous QC, and he yeah, was talking exactly. about the idea of Aboriginal people being at the whim of government, and I think it's such an interesting expression because when you talk about the Wiradjuri being subject to a whole range of legislation, it's a similar idea that self-determination has to always be about escaping from being at the whim of government mm. and that that's a lot of what the Uluru Statement from the Heart is on about, is that self-determination is right. We're no longer at your beck and call. We're now designing mm. our future. And and um, the legislation is somehow applicable to that, that mm. there's this set of unspoken constrictions on people and until those are gone, you're not getting anywhere, you're not going forward. And
4: okay. interesting,
3: sorry, sorry Donnie, you go.
4: I was just going to say that the, the relationship between the two women. It's 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 really interesting picture of female frank, friendship and how it can be distorted by by the color culture of the time. You know, how this quick woman somehow decides James is a be all and the end all and, and ends up ends up distorted herself. Mm. So so it and what, yeah just the effect of that on on female friendship is what might be intuitive is screwed by the clumps of the particular culture of the time I think
3: yeah absolutely
1: yeah that, um so during the course of I mean obviously writing these books there's significant research um can you tell us a bit about the research because obviously Anita you know you you said you 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 learned the language you you went to country. I think you even fell into the Murrumbidgee River, didn't you? Um Jake, and,
3: your research is impeccable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Jock, obviously, you know the Ferno Islands. Um, you know, you've obviously been there loads of times. Mm-hmm. And uh, because that certainly comes through. And and similarly in preservation, you know, the the journey, the walk, and and Dottie, the the, the Parramatta female factory. Um, the stuff about market day there, for example, is is extraordinary. If you could if you could tell us about the 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 level and the amount of research that went into the books, I think that would be quite interesting.
4: Okay. Well, if, go, don't if if I will I start. Uh, yeah. I, I started really with a, with a visit to actual Paramount a Female Factory, you know, which which is quite quite a, an amazing building in itself. It's it's a Francis Greenway building. It's wonderful sandstone. And for, at the time when I was visiting it, there was a group called the Parramatta Friends of Friends of Parramatta Female Factory. They were, and they were, they were basically a lobby group to try and stop the buildings being taken over by various developers. And luckily, they were successful, and is now a heritage yes. item. Uh, and um, I think, I mean, my experience with writing is that. But there's a sense of recognition, and I was looking at the wall, and if you looked at parts of the sandstone wall, you could see where somebody had carved their initials in there, you know, really, and you'd think, well, who, who was that person? You know, yeah. why, did they, why did they carve their, their initials? And I suppose that was the start of the process. And, and there was also around that time, in connection with the Friends of the Female Factory, there was a, a touring exhibition which had photographs and images of the various women involved in in the factory. And that again went with the idea of um, fictionalizing the woman whose story I tell because some of those some of those pictures, there were actual photographs of or images of the of the real woman there, but there were also just silhouettes, you know, just heads. And that was it. Uh, mm. And and then at range, there's uh, you do your your historical reading. You look at um, you look at uh, there's a very good book called Cargo of Women by Babette Francis, which and I was interested in, yeah. in. I was really interested in the emotional cargo rather than the you know the sense of a physical cargo. I was interested in in the the, the culture, the history they brought with them, particularly particularly Molly Malone, who brings that whole 1798 Year of Liberty, all that Irish, mm-hmm. thing, which is which part of my, <laughs> yeah. part of. My, Part of my problem. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so that was reading everything I could get my hands on, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Anita, your your I mean, you've touched on your, your the, the the amount of research you did, but um, can you expand a bit on that?
3: Yeah, I went, to, so I went down to Wagga at least eight times in that period of time for language lessons but also I spent time, time in Wagga Library and we quite often we think that all the knowledge is on the shelves in libraries and I shout out to the librarians in Wagga Wagga City Library and Gundagai Library because I was rang up, I said, I'm coming down, I've got this amount of time and I get there and there's a trolley of everything I needed between this period and this ter- period for me to go through. great. <laughs> right. um, and same thing in, in Gundagai Library, they have a you know, community mm-hmm. history area and so forth and in that library so you know in 2017 was the unveiling of the statues of Fiyadi and Jackie Jackie on Sheridan Street um, in Gundagai. But there's a number of memorials um, around the town. So with the town isn't very big. So I, you know I walked that a number of times as well and looked at all those things. I you know stood in the Murrumbidgee. I stood in the floodplains also in in Wagga and I imagined what life must have been like for my ancestors. I cut a cool you know with my group cut a coolerman. I did all the things that we also see when Yindi takes his sons out for a few days. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we learned so much about the landscape and how to use different natural resources. And I did all of that. And and so I went, also did a row. I wanted to know, I wanted to imagine what it was like to be on the water, on the Murrumbidgee in a canoe. Now, obviously those two men, well, four men went out during the flood, flood Yari, Jackie Jackie, uh, Tommy Davis and Long Jimmy. But it was only Yari and Jackie Jackie who saved 59 lives, as it were. But what I learned in that moment being on the river, now I go out in November, beautiful blue sky. I've got a life jacket on. I'm in a group of 20 people. Uh, and it's new that seats two. I'm never going to drown, right? I'm going to, yeah. I fall in. Uh, <laughs> I have, an ele- I, I, for a moment, I get an element of fear because I'm, I, you know, I'm still a bit afraid. It's freezing water. But what I learned in that 20 kilometer row down river was I learned how incredibly knowledgeable those men must have been to able to work that river with one person at a time on their canoe in mm. torrential rain and raging floodwaters over three days. And I thought, this is knowledge and skill that's never been recognised as well. So, you know, and, and all, on top of them being heroes. Um, so that was, I'm a method writer, so I try to get into that space. And um, the language stuff I sent to... People in my cohort at Charleston University to read Uncle Stan Grant, Arnie Elaine Lomas, um, and so forth, because my, I had so I had two months of severe anxiety before the book came out. I was nauseous for twenty four seven. I blood tests, and because I wanted to make sure that the people of Gundagai, whose story it is, are yeah. happy uh, with the way they've been represented as a town. I met a direct descendant of somebody, Ian Horsley is his name, and his great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather was saved by Yari. And so I wanted wow. to make sure. Yeah. it's like, amazing. Yeah. And he is the most beautiful soul. His family have done, erected a statue on the family property. They've donated mm. a sundial to town and so forth. And he came along to the launch in Gundagai. And um, so for me, the research in any of my books is far more significant than the writing far more takes me more time because i can write fast um and i'm a plotter so everything's mapped out um and so the research is is the stressful thing for me
1: jock what about your research um yeah i was just thinking
5: about that and and um i agree with anita very much that the research is, is the mountain from which you're kind of quarrying little bits of mineral and um I, I often have these discussions in the editing process about, um, you get sucked into including things in the novel because you found them in the research.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, if this course.
5: is just too good to pass up, I've got yeah. to put this on the page. And Mandy, who who is my editor and has been throughout, well, she can pick those things absolutely remorselessly and say, get it out. It's doing nothing for the story. You just <laughs> found it somewhere. And she's always right. Um, but I have this thing about what I call the White Glove Act, which is the, the ability to go into an archive and get out the white gloves and find the original diary and carefully turn the pages and you know breathe in the cursive and, and all of that. And I've never been much good at it. And um, <laughs> I, I felt like I was just starting to get the hang of the White Glove Act when the pandemic came along and you couldn't get into libraries anymore. So that was almost going to be the threshold that I was going to cross. So what I have, I guess, instead of the White Glove Act is, is what Anita refers to, which is the getting in a boat or walking a coastline. Um, and I've done lots of those things. And I think it's really important to make the point about historical research, that it can be very experiential. It can be all sorts of things, quite aside from um, pouring through archives. And um, it's evolving over time for me. So I am working through diaries, but I'm, I'm getting better at, at researching online. And um, perhaps getting a little bit better at not being so literal about the things that I find. Um, although you, you do find absolute gems. And of course, truth is stranger than fiction. So often the things that you find won't work well as a fictional um, deployment because they're just illogical. They're, they're so incredibly random that um, oddly enough, the fiction is more conservative than, than what actually happened. Um, But yeah, I I love that process and I love the winnowing down from a giant amount of material to something that that at its core is about empathy between people, that that you can wander around in the documents as much as you want. But if you're not bringing a reader to a point of understanding this person who's long since gone, then there's no point being there at all. And and, and everything has to point back to that idea that I as the writer and you as the reader need, we need to find empathy with this person who can't speak for themselves.
1: So the, so the emotional truths of yes. historical fiction are as important as the history, the, the truth of the history. I think the, the whole reason you're
2: there.
1: Yeah.
4: Because it's really about how people change and how they don't change. Mm.
2: Yes. Yes.
5: Or I, I sometimes think of it as, are these people entirely different people or are they us in funny clothes? <laughs> and I, I still don't know the answer to be honest
1: <laughs> but you 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 obviously have been around the ferno Islands so quite a fair bit that's the impression yes. i got from the book anyway um, yeah,
5: no you're quite right and one of the things that um really strikes me about that place and and other writers at uh, nita and dotty would would be struck in a similar way is that um it's physically beautiful it's really entrancing because they're these huge granite boulders that, that produce this extraordinarily white sand so the shallows are incredibly clear and, and the vegetation is reasonably undisturbed so everything is in this gorgeous pristine state and yet underneath all of that there have been some really shocking misdeeds in those islands over, mm. uh, over history and um, the way in which you physically experience a place and try to imagine what went before, when there's no physical trace to, to hold in your hand. Um, that That's a really important process. But it's also a very uncanny feeling to know that you're 200 years down the track from terrible stuff, and that you're 20 or 30,000 years down the track from another entire civilization that, that um, I don't have the expertise to see properly. But, mm-hmm. Those things are extremely humbling, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um- I know this is probably a question writers of historical fiction uh, probably ask all the time. But are there are there um, other writers of historical fiction whom you particularly admire?
4: Well, for me, I jump straight to Hilary Mantel. I think right.
2: Have... Yeah,
4: <laughs> but lots of others as well. Um, but they they do vary. Like I mentioned, the hysterical fiction thing as well. And I think mm. I think they're to be avoided really. They are they they are the the dress ups, not the not the be ups. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I have some specific books I like. Uh, obviously, um, Kate Grenville's *The Secret River* I think was extraordinary, mm-hmm. and the theatrical production in Sydney that Sydney Theatre Company did was just brilliant and most of that was done in the sydney language i loved marcus suzak's the book thief mm-hmm. i thought that was an extraordinary that's in my top 10 and i loved Mirandi's book from last year and i think yeah. the idea about it is when you learn you know you learn i don't know that i would i wouldn't have picked up a non-fiction book to learn about the gold rushes in queensland and i mm-hmm. I, I could not put a novel down and so yeah they're just three if anyone's looking for a recommendation there's three
5: <laughs> um, I'm a little bit more in the neighbourhood of I, I guess um, I'm trying to think of the right expression but maybe narrative history rather than historical fiction so um, the, the book that really affected me a lot was there's um, a, a story of Burke and Wills written by a woman called Sarah Murgatroyd and it's called oh, yeah. the Dick Tree, and she wrote it in about 96 she was quite young at the time and she was very sick and and she died shortly after it was published um, but it is an extraordinary attempt to to marry practical research with um, what I was talking about that attempt to understand people. Um, mm-hmm. It does it so beautifully and it's so readable. Uh, and mm-hmm. then there's all these great authors, historians working at the moment like Claire Wright and, and Mark McKenna mm-hmm. and Tom Griffiths um, and Grace Caskins. I mean there's a host of these people who are writing, really accessible history. They're coming out of the academy, but it's not academia. It's um, it's really accessible writing, and that's, I think, driving this kind of surge of interest in reassessing things. Like if you take the dig tree, most of us would argue that it's a story that we more or less understand because we were, we were forced fed it at school. But to have people come along in the 21st century and reappraise it and yeah. take it apart and reassemble it um, is extraordinarily valuable, I think. I I love
1: that little sort of genre. -hmm. Now, there are a few questions and comments here, which we might see what. Um, So, Robin Young, she says it's a comment, but um, about your comment, uh, Jock. So, how much of what is termed history is subjective and how much history is fact?
5: Oh, none of it. That
1: is a very big question. <laughs>
5: um, I think it's all subjective. I, I After I wrote Preservation, I, I wrote a thesis about writing Preservation and, and the idea was, yeah, how do you erase yourself when you write historical fiction? And the answer is you can't. Um, mm. There is absolutely no way to approach this material that's not in some sense subjective. Mm. Um, it, it's important to try but um, you're never ever going to quite efface yourself. And that's true, as much as that's true of me, it's true of the person who wrote the diary in 1830. Um, and and I guess what's important is to be discerning about what their agendas are and, and to try to see through them. But um, you're never ever going to get to the objective empirical truth.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was an um, uh, interesting comment uh, yesterday in our session about, um, Uh, complicated love and Emily Maguire was talking about her family and there are four four siblings and she was saying well um, you know uh, uh, how I see my parents all my other siblings will have a completely different truth about the parents and the Mm -hmm. upbringing and everything completely different truth and that must be the case with history Mm -hmm. I mean yes you can say that so and so was killed at a particular moment in a at a particular place, but how that's written about changes everything. Well, Jen,
3: if we all came back tomorrow, and we asked all thus four and all those <laughs> logged in to record the history of today. I guarantee you, I do this with my students that yeah. everybody. Would record it differently. There are facts yes. that can't be changed. It's Saturday afternoon. It's the Ride right Around the Murray Festival. We are the four panelists. We're all fantastic. Facts that can't be changed. And everybody <laughs>
2: knows
3: the way that those facts are remembered. Like and we, we we're all recording it through a lens. And we read yeah. recording panelists and other people are recording it as as you know zooming in. And that's what makes it subjective. We just need we I think readers need to be aware of the lens that the author writes through. And we yes, need
4: and, yeah sorry johnny so i was just going to say that i th- i think the other important thing is is that the relationship between history and myth and co- constant myth making that goes on because if you talk for example like if i talk to talk to my aged mother her recollection of things that happened way back when is nothing like my recollection of the same thing so so you know you've got you've got this mythic evolution that happens over time as well yeah, it's well, a different Oh, sorry, Jason,
5: I think no, one of the no, satisfying ways to write and read history is to do it from multiple viewpoints, to, to bring in a number of voices looking at the same event, because it's a bit like Emily Maguire's family, all of a sudden you realise that it's actually five or six families, mm. um, similar thing happens.
3: Well, <laughs> or In my family, <laughs> my view was I wrote an article for The Age about how I was Dad's favourite. Not thinking it would upset anybody, and then I had a sibling that wouldn't speak to me for weeks. I was like, everybody knows I was Dad's favorite, but clearly everybody didn't know, or their interpretation of that their relationship was so completely
4: subjective. Yeah, yeah. But that's one of the things historical fiction allows you to do as well. You know, to to go to different characters and and explore those those stories without necessarily being bound to a particular documented
1: set of facts. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm always intrigued that, um, you know, now uh, history books as such, there are so many coming out that are uh, are um, revealing so much about stuff that you thought is was hidden. I mean, cassette, take Cassandra Pybus's biography of, uh, of Trigonini, for example. You know, who would have thought that there would have been this this new biography of her.
3: Um, Yeah, and and also the whole idea that Traganini was the last Tasmanian. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we're still, it's clear that those books, even with new content, are are needed because, you know, we're still using literature across genres to break down all those myths around the history because the history was recorded by the settlers. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Now there's another question. Oh, sorry, John, go ahead.
5: I was just gonna say that I think also um, the same process is happening in long-form journalism, that in the last two days, there's been two ABC pieces, one about the Carmody and Bussell families in Western Australia, and one about Tom Wills, who's the the so-called inventor of Aussie rules. And both of them were stories about modern families discovering an ugly secret in their past, and then taking the time and the care to go back to Aboriginal people and ask about those events and and new and disturbing stories emerge but there's an important process of truth telling that comes with it and and, um it's amazing that that is still happening and things are still being unearthed and there's still big conversations to be had even after all this time And, and you know a lot of complacency gets swept aside
1: yeah i think that's right i think that's right now there's another question a question from kate folds who says, and maybe we've touched on this, but can any of the authors share something new they learnt researching the facts, perhaps something that surprised them? Well, um, quite a lot, I imagine, but um, who would like to answer that one?
3: I didn't know about the Quakers. And I saw, so, mm. uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, obviously I'd heard about the Quakers, like, mm. you know, so it's like, fr- but, so I think for me that was a really interesting and interesting find. Um, and I'd be interested. I haven't done any more research, to see how much of that, their original passion for equality when they arrived in Australia, how, how that's played out today, mm. how that's changed or, um, you know, what outcomes there's been over history. Because obviously when I was researching, I was just focusing on that period of
4: time.
5: Dotty?
4: Mm. Well, I guess uh, just exploring the, the letter that... Um, that uh Mark Go- Matron Gordon wrote to her her daughter whose name was La- Letitia and you look up the name means you know joy and happiness and so on and that's what she's looking for and that's what that's what's missing. So so just little little incidental things, you know, like the crockery that they use, the, the kind of like I said, the little carved stone walls. All those those tiny those the minutiae, minutiae of life. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um,
5: I was trying to think of a good example, but um, the one I can come up with is that there is a ship's captain in the Burning Island who is a cross-dresser, um, and it would give away too much to talk about why, but uh, I had no idea what it would be that he would be wearing. So I had to spend a lot of time on the Victoria and Albert Museum website looking at dresses um, so that I could, so that I could yeah. dress my captain. Sure. My spare time, Anita?
1: A very quick... Now, we haven't got much time left, so um, a very quick question from... uh, Well, we need a quick answer from a question from Sally Densher. What would your main advice be to a novelist who is keen to start writing historical fiction?
3: I would say read historical fiction. Read the genre you want to write in. Uh, And I'm a plotter, so if you've got an idea, write a synopsis and then plot it out before you, st- and then research and then write.
4: I, I, would, I would go with reading. Yeah, just read and, re- and immerse yourself in particularly the, per- the period that particularly interests you. You know, whether you start with some something that relates to your own area of expertise, perhaps, um, or your own family, but find a connection.
5: I, I think mine would be... Um like I was talking before about the White Glove Act, don't be daunted by the archive, but use all of the resources that are available to you and all of your talents and, and things you've got access to as your research. Um, there, there are actually multiple ways into a historical story, not just the archive, as important as it is.
1: And a very final quick question, uh, directed to you, Anita, from Kate Folds, wondering whether you wrote any of your novel Sitting on the bank of the Murrumbidgee River,
3: Kate. Everywhere I went, in along, the, I had a notepad in my hand. I didn't actually write with my laptop. I did in Gundagai my laptop in a little caravan park thing. Um, but in, when I was out on country learning and everything with my cohort, I'm I'm taking notes the whole time. I think now I thought I was taking them for my assessments. I was taking them because the whole time I was unfolding the story in my head. So uh, always taking some notes. It, Every bird I saw, every tree I saw, I was writing down names and so forth.
1: Okay, well, look, I think we've, unfortunately we've run out of time. I, I, I suspect we could have gone on a significantly longer actually, uh, but so um, I would just like to say, Anita, Jock and Dottie, thank you so much. It's a shame we weren't in the library, but thank you, it was wonderful. Now to to people watching, if you want to buy their books, so this is um, Dottie's Of Breath and Blood. Anita's River of Dreams. I didn't try to pronounce it again, Anita. That's pathetic of me. Joksarong's The Burning Island. Um, You can buy them from Dimmock's in Albury if you are lucky enough to be in Albury, where you'll get 25% off during lockdown, free delivery, and you can get them on Click and Collect. But there are also any other bookshop in the country will have these books, and I'm sure you can get them Click and Collect from them. So, in half an hour, there's a, a final session of the right around, of this year's Right Around the Murray Festival, um, which you, if you haven't booked, you can book on the website. It's a deep and rich conversation traversing personal, planetary, and cultural change with Delia Falconer, Rick Morton, and Ailsa Piper. And so that's it. F- this is the penu- end of the penultimate session. And once again, Anita, Jock, and Dottie, thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Mandango.
2: Thank, thank you. Done, done. Well done.